You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Several years ago, for those of you who are here, I utilized Tree of Life for my doctoral ministry project that focused us on equipping us for a passionate involvement in the spiritual restoration of Israel with some evangelistic training undergirded by an appropriate foundation of Messianic Jewish theology. As I finished up the dissertation portion of that project, the final few pages discussed some recommendations for future study. And one par- paragraph I wrote stated this, quote, The subject of this project could be expanded by offering a training course on Messianic Jewish apologetics to complement the training in Jewish evangelism. With the acceptance of Yeshua as the Messiah comes much opposition and objection from within the Jewish community. The Jewish community has formed its own set of objections to Yeshua and the claims of his followers. Many Jewish people who come to faith in Yeshua can be ostracized by their own communities or disowned even by their own families. And while there has been much progress in Jewish-Christian relations, there is a need for Messianic Jewish apologetics. Messianic Jewish apologist Dr. Michael Brown has written a five-volume set entitled Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus to make preparation for such a training course easier to implement. As part of the Great Commission, the emissary Kepha, or Peter, challenges the believer, quote, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. A reasoned answer draws on objective evidence and uses rational arguments, making use of scripture and one's testimony in a spirit of love and humility. So a year later, I put this training and teaching in place here, and now it's been over four years, and so I'm again, once again, recircling around to my own recommendation at this time with you, albeit today anyway, with more of a general focus. The word... Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, spelled apologia, which is ordinarily translated as defense or vindication. Along with its verb form, apologeumai, it is found eight times in the New Covenant scriptures. And of those eight times, Three of those specifically relate to to a defense of the Messianic faith. Others talk about defense before various kings and so on. But the first of these passages, if you turn with me, are found in Shaul's letter to the Philippians. And we find in verse 7 the following scripture. It is right for me, Shaul writes, to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. For you are all partakers of grace with me, 
both in my imprisonment and in the apologia and in the defense and confirmation of the good news. Now, it's possible that Paul here in this passage is referring to something else, that he's referring maybe to his upcoming trial in which he would indeed give a defense of his ministry. We find in Acts chapter 26. But he continues to make a correlation in this verse in Philippians between defending the Besorah, the gospel, and evangelism. In fact, if you go on in that chapter in verses 12 through 18, Shaul discusses the motivation behind the proclamation of the gospel and declares that his own personal motivation for this is love because he's been appointed to the defense of the gospel. Now, it doesn't need to be demonstrated that the 21st century Western world has produced an apologetic landscape focused primarily on non-believers. Nevertheless, the concern that believers may require this material as part of their own discipleship appears to have even been present so early on here in the early body of Messiah. And so the question might still be asked regarding the authors of the four New Covenant Gospels. The question being, to what degree are they motivated by the intention of persuading non-believers to accept Messianic faith versus helping believers to overcome their own doubts and their own hesitations. The first few generations of the faith were in need of discipleship in this form of apologetics. So here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and much ink has been spilled on this problem of the believer doubting his or her own salvation and needing apologia. But there's a second sort of doubt within the community of Faith that has received much less attention. Namely, some believers experience intellectual doubt relating to matters of worldview. And often that occurs during times of great suffering in their lives. A worldview is an overall conception of reality. There is a strong evidence in the scriptures that early adherence to this messianic faith were experiencing worldview doubts in the face of much pressure. In fact, Yehuda, Jude, Judah can hardly be ignored. The author urges, quote, and have mercy on those who are wavering. Likely referring to those who were experiencing doctrinal doubts because of the messages that were being brought forward by false brothers, false teachers. Yet today, many believers, whether you're Jewish or otherwise, are unaware of apologetics. And those who are aware of the discipline imagine it, it's just too tough to learn. The hopeful believer may fear that he or she will not have adequate answers to specific questions. And he or she might worry that their efforts are going to even make things worse. In short, what am I saying? I'm sh in, in, in short, many believers, like ourselves, lack confidence. And so this teaching series is aimed at exactly that, shoring up confidence. Go with me to Acts chapter 17. Paul's understanding of the word apologia in this sense is supported by his interactions with Gentiles throughout his quote-unquote missionary journeys. Especially we find in Acts chapter 17. As he begins 
with the universal understanding as he's sharing here at Mars Hill of the existence of deity. And then he moves on to the evidence that creation provides for this deity. Paul is utilizing what has become a classic formulation of natural theology. Let's pick it up in verse 18, Acts chapter 17. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what's this babbler trying to say? While others, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities because he was proclaiming the good news of Yeshua and the resurrection. So they took Paul to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are talking about, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, now all of the Athenians and foreigners visiting there used to pass their time doing nothing but telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in all ways you are very religious. For while I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything since he himself gives to everyone life and breath and all things. From one he made every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having set appointed times and the boundaries of their territory. They were to search for him and perhaps grope around for him and find him, yet he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, I find that interesting, for we also are his offspring. Since we are his offspring, we ought not to suppose the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an engraved image of human art and imagination. So apologetics is often referred to as, quote, pre-evangelism, in that it prepares people to accept the gospel. And so his defense here before the, the Areopagus, that prominent rock, out, uh, rock outcropping northwest of the Acropolis in Athens, maybe in your Bibles it's termed Mars Hill, Paul here is preparing the people by engaging in apologetics. His intention in this is made clear in these final verses of this chapter in Acts 17 as Paul then precisely and concisely presents the gospel and then he calls his audience to a decision. You see, it seems likely here that Paul's use of apologetics was a crucial factor in some in this chapter accepting Yeshua as the Messiah. Paul understood the cultural context in which he found himself, and he adjusted his message accordingly while not adjusting the core message of the gospel. And he quotes some of their poets. That would be like me up here quoting Rihanna or something to back up something maybe in the scriptures or something. He's calling out one of their poets or one of their philosophers. Now, perhaps the most famous scriptural use of the term apologia within the context of the gospel was found in Peter's first letter that I read earlier in chapter 3 in the face of believers who are experiencing intense warfare and persecution. Peter instructs them to endure it with a positive attitude. 
to always answer the charges of their accusers by giving a defense for their belief. His direct words are recorded. Again, quote, always be ready to give an apologia, an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with what? Humility and reverence. And according to the letter's introduction, it, along with the relevant mandate of apologetics, was written, this was written to a group of Messianic congregations in Asia Minor. And therefore, it's reasonable to conclude that the shaliach, the emissary, the apostle, intended followers of Yeshua everywhere to be prepared to give a reasoned answer. The Greek word that is translated as reason in that verse, 1 Peter 3.15, is logos, spelled L-O-G-O-S, logos, which indicates an expression of speech that fully encompasses an idea or a thought. You see, a proper, quote, reason can only be understood to be exactly that, a fully developed and well-thought-out presentation that begins with apologetics and rounds third base and comes home with a presentation of the gospel. This is the pattern that Paul lays out for us. And so without proper training in how to provide such a reason, in my opinion, evangelism falls short a little bit. And so as Peter implores Yeshua followers to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within them, apologetics is in a sense the expression of the reason, but the hope within is the source of that expression. So we move forward in history. We find in the Middle Ages there was a Benedictine monk, Peter Damien, admitting that ignorance of defenses Ignorance of defenses against anti-Messianic Jewish arguments could lead to doubt among believers. I don't know about you, but I've known many in my life, maybe they've been decades in the faith, but they go through a season of serious doubt. And that's okay. In his Antilogos Contra Judaicos, he demands this, quote, this Benedictine monk in the Middle Ages, quote, one may add that often harmful ineptitude and dangerous simplicity in such matters not only excite boldness in the unbelieving, but also beget error and doubt in the hearts of the faithful. Let me read that again. One may add that often harmful ineptitude and dangerous simplicity in such matters not only excite boldness in the unbelieving, but also beget error and doubt in the hearts of the faithful. We've all been sitting, we've sat in congregations where maybe an altar call through an evangelism, and you cringe because it's not the full counsel of God in that altar call and a left out like a good portion of the gospel. You see, a lack of apologetic knowledge among believers was resulting in worldview doubts even during the Middle Ages period. And the same is true as we move on in the Reformation era. John Calvin admits this, quote, For unbelief is so deeply rooted in our hearts and we are so inclined to it that not without hard struggle is each one able to persuade himself of what all confess with the mouth, namely that God is faithful. It was difficult even in the days of the Reformation. There was a lot of worldview doubts. There was doubt in the gospel. And so apologetics serves a purpose. But if it's ever thought that it by itself can be a basis of our faith, that is dangerous. 
Noted Christian apologist William Lane Craig often urges that the the way that one can know the faith is true is, quote, I love this, the self-authenticating witness of God's Holy Spirit. Or more simply put, apologetics shows that that the faith is true while it is Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that the believer knows the faith is true. You see, if anyone, the apologist, him or herself, considers you know, rational argumentation to be the ultimate of, our, of the basis of our faith, there's a great danger emerging there. Apologetics is useful, my friends, but we have to rightly understand its purpose. There's still something more that the history of doubting the faith has demonstrated, I think. And again, I mentioned it earlier. Doubting can be a good thing. Another notable Christian apologist, Michael Icona, explains a difficult season of doubt during which he wrestled with the centuries-old debate regarding the resurrection. His doubt contributed, and this was like a 12-year battle for him, his doubt contributed to one of the most noteworthy Christian apologetic works of this century. And I encourage you to pick it up, The Resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach that he wrote in 2010. And that way, doubt may indirectly result in a stronger belief. So I want to encourage some of you here. The past 25 years have brought us in the body of the Messiah. It's been a golden age for both Messianic Jewish and Christian apologetic resources. It seems there, there is an ever-increasing mountain of resources available and material. But there may not be a lot of knowledge among believers, though, even though there's plenty of material, who think, again, that apologetics, man, it's just too difficult to understand. Or maybe they're fearful of confrontation. Certainly, these facts would make it difficult to motivate us to both learn and do what I like to call evangelistic apologetics. But they also hinder what we might call discipleship apologetics. Today, truly, there is a need to prepare us for the use of apologetics as a form of our own discipleship among the doubting faithful. It may be that the doubts that some of us have experienced or are experienced or will experience are related to worldview but they appear to be intellectual. But it may be that the believer is experiencing worldview doubts for purely emotional reasons. Uh, that may, they may, you know, some of us may doubt that God exists or that he is a good God because of some things that have happened. Maybe it's been the death of a child and some of us have experienced that here. But my gut tells me that apologetics as discipleship may serve as a gateway toward evangelistic apologetics. And so there's a growing diversity within American culture today in terms of both our religious faith and our practice. And as a result, those of us who engage in personal evangelism are likely to encounter sophisticated atheists and those with radically different worldviews and religious practices. We, a number of us went uh, this past Thursday night to see the second night of premiere of The Harbinger, of Things to Come film, and it was great because... Darcy and I had to go out and get some uh, cat food after the movie to Target in the shopping center, and Robert went with us, and Robert was, he was primed, ready, man. He just had a, an evangelistic spirit on him, and we went to check out, and, and he just started praying for the cashier right there, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the line. Most followers of Yeshua have not been trained in how to defend their faith. How do we respond cogently to serious apologetic objections 
serious objections to our faith. And as a result, we feel intimidated. As a result, some of us feel uh, inadequate. And so this lack of knowledge has rendered a lot of believers unable to adequately defend their faith and has resulted in a general lack of confidence in the area of evangelism. And so the series will attempt to remedy that problem as well. Again, many think it's not relevant to their lives. It's too difficult to learn. And perhaps that's why even what I'm doing today has been lacking in the body of the Messiah at large. The ultimate goal, again, of apologetics is not to win an argument. That's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to demonstrate, hey, we have superior intellect. But what? It's to strengthen faith to the point where that lies beyond the clutches of doubt. It is from this level of confidence that active evangelistic engagement flows out of us. You see, apologetics is not only useful for strengthening the faith of other people, it's equally useful for reminding us of the truth that you and I already know. And so there's a positive correlation, isn't there? Think about it. Between our confidence in our faith and then our corresponding likelihood that we're going to be out there engaging in evangelism. So in summary, let's sum it up can be broken down, apologetics, into four distinct purposes. Purpose number one on your sheets. You can write some notes here. Number one, to provide evidence for the rational basis of our faith, of the faith. It must begin, apologetics must begin by providing the rational basis. Here's where it starts, for the existence of God. We have to start there. The process of apologetics must, therefore, begin with the natural world that we all experience and we all observe. The cosmological argument seeks to provide and answer the basic questions of existence. And it posits that God is the only plausible explanation for our origin and our existence in that of the universe. And so we begin there and then we build on this concept of the cosmological argument. We move forward after we get that solid with the teleological argument, which argues that the presence of design and purpose in the universe is, it is evidence for us of an intelligent designer. The argument has been the most, this teleological argument, has been the most successful in convincing skeptics of the existence of God. Then we move on to the moral argument for God. That posits that the existence of good in the world, the universal understanding we have in our world of right and wrong, right and wrong is evidence that there has to be a source for the existence and this knowledge. And from here, the apologist will seek to demonstrate the inability of naturalism, the inability of evolution to adequately explain the phenomena of moral understanding. Beyond conscience and morality, there's something else within humans that powerfully points to the existence of God. You see, more than any other creature, humans are endowed with reason and consciousness. These two unique features cannot adequately be explained by naturalism. We're going to look at those arguments in detail next Shabbat. Number two purpose for apologetics is to answer objections. A robust apologetic presentation must include a defense of Scripture itself. Anyone who engages today out there in evangelism will almost, and we have, almost certainly encounter people, right, who are skeptical of the Bible. They've been influenced by claims out there of the Bible's corruption, uh, the Bible's inaccuracy, and most of these objections actually can be very easily dispelled and answered because in truth, the Bible actually, and we're going to look at it later in our study, is by far the best attested 
piece of ancient literature in existence. And so one of the most common of these objections is referred to as the problem of evil. Because of the existence of evil, many have concluded that God cannot possibly exist. If he does exist, and he's certainly not worthy of worship. And in addition to that, it's essential that believers be exposed and educated on the basis of religious belief and assumptions of other cultures as well. Apologetics consists of presenting evidence, but evidence has to be interpreted. And the lens through which people interpret evidence is their worldview. Again, a worldview is just a conception of reality. So I love what Dr. Brown has stated in his first volume, Answering Jewish Objections to Yeshua. He says this, the principal problems include, number one, most Jews are not familiar with the Jesus of the New Testament or with the true Christian or Messianic Jewish faith. This means that many of the objections they raise are based on misunderstanding. The best refutation of these objections is simply to set the record straight. Number two, what we call traditional Judaism today was only in its formative stage 2,000 years ago. Therefore, the Messianic Jewish faith is basically as old as the rabbinic Jewish faith, and in some ways it is older. Both of these religious expressions were thoroughly Jewish faiths that went different ways. Therefore, they have much in common. However, since it was the rabbinic faith that stood recognized as, quote, mainstream Judaism, and since this faith stood in opposition to belief in Yeshua, it became dogma that belief in Yeshua and true Judaism were incompatible. But the question must be asked, who determined that rabbinic Judaism was the true Judaism? Who decided that the teachings of the rabbis were Jewish, while the teachings of the disciples of Yeshua were not Jewish? That is almost like the apples saying to the oranges, only apples are fruit, therefore oranges are not fruit. Says who? The real question is, what do the Hebrew scriptures teach? Which Jewish expression follows the Bible? This must be the rule of Jewish faith and practice. He goes on to say, some things must have changed. According to the rabbis, we now have the Talmud and rabbinic writings as our guide. According to Jewish believers in Yeshua, we have the writings of the new covenant. Which of these is to be followed? The answer, that which is faithful to the Hebrew scriptures and recognizes the true Messiah. Finally, he says, when answering some objections, we must respectfully say, I appreciate your traditions and interpretations, and I know you think they are authentically Jewish, but in fact, they are not in harmony with the Hebrew scriptures. At other times, our answer is very different. Look at your own traditions. They are my traditions too. They say the same thing I'm trying to say. Maybe you just never considered them in the context of belief in Yeshua and the new covenant. Purpose number three of apologetics on your sheet, to raise objections to unbelief. And so in that sense, the believer engages in a counteroffensive, if you will, designed to demonstrate the absurdity of the non-existence of God. In addition... Listen, the atheistic worldview, my friends, there's, that's hopelessness. And in addition to that hopelessness, there's a great deal of inconsistency present in all non-believing worldviews. And so there's a branch of apologetics that deals with this aspect as well that seeks to point out these inconsistencies and to further demonstrate that the biblical worldview is the only worldview that can accommodate and account for things like truth and reason 
and morality. Finally, the fourth reason for apologetics is to increase the faith of believers themselves. Discussion, as we will discuss, of natural theology consists of philosophical arguments based on logic and reason, is intended to confirm our own innate understanding of God's existence and to provide that counterbalance of intellectual arguments and attacks of non-believers against us. And so once we are uh, assured of the intellectual integrity of our faith, the second element is designed to provide a necessary defense of special revelation of the Bible. Because the Bible is the primary source of knowledge within the faith, it's imperative that we have confidence, right, in its truthfulness and its reliability, or else our entire faith will be called into question. And so by, by presenting a case, as we will, of a comprehensive case for the inspiration of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, our faith, if in the truth claims itself, is thereby strengthened helping us defend our faith from objections that we encounter in our lives, especially within the context of evangelism, is critical. You see, a believer who is silent in the face of attack is basically conceding the battle before it even starts. Now, this discipline has had a, a great history as far back as even the late 4th century CE, um, with Augustine as an early believing theologian and philosopher. Believers have been using evidence and have been using rational arguments as a means of defending our faith from and presenting it to non-believers. And so, as I mentioned, if the purpose of apologetics is to enable ultimately evangelism, then it's necessary to begin at the beginning with natural theology because the unbeliever will rarely up front accept the truth of the scriptures, the veracity of the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures. They'll, they'll rarely accept that, so we have to begin with first things first. Again, natural theology consists of philosophical arguments based on reason and logic. The goal of it is, therefore, to implant a, a rational possibility for the existence of God within the minds of non-believers, which will then, in turn, prepare them to receive and accept special revelation. Consider the evidences all around us. Consider the evidences that are even inside of us. Go with me to Psalms chapter 19 for a moment. The evidence all around us. The heavens declare, right, the glory of God. And the sky shows its handiwork. How many of you saw that blood red moon Sunday? How many of you got engaged under a blood red moon? Somebody did. Somebody did. Just saying. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky shows its handiwork. The cosmological argument for God. What is a cosmological argument for God? Well, this is an argument that says the existence of the universe is evidence that there must have been a cause for the existence of the universe. And that God is the best explanation. And so the argument is based on our own observation that everything that exists has a cause for its existence. In light of the fact that the universe does exist, in light of the fact that everything that exists has a cause, it's therefore, therefore logically necessary that the universe had a cause. 
And so in order to determine, well, is that a valid argument or not, we have to consider each of its premises. And we're going to do this with several of the different arguments here. Premise number one on your sheet, bullet point one. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Write that down. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, most scientists agree, with this for a number of reasons, whether it's Big Bang, cosmology, whether it's entropy, you know, a gradual decline into disorder. As believers, we know this is true because the Bible tells it to us. In the beginning, God created. So there's premises to this cosmological argument for God. How is this an argument for God? The argument alone is insufficient because most atheists actually would agree and simply tell you and state that the Big Bang was the cause for the universe. So they'll, they'll, they'll agree that there was an, an initial cause. And so we have to then go deeper, don't we? The universe very clearly exists, and our experience and reason tell us that everything exists has a cause for its existence. And regardless of what you and I believe about God, you must admit that something at some point had to be the first cause of everything else, right? Otherwise, nothing would exist today. And further, this thing had to have been itself uncaused, meaning it had to be self-existent and more powerful than the thing that it is creating. So the question then becomes, which is more likely, that an all-powerful God could be the self-existent cause of everything else, or that bacteria or energy or aliens from another planet. That's proposed by a prominent biologist, Richard Dawkins, by the way, Dr. Dawkins in his documentary, Expelled, could be the self-existent cause of everything else. A book that we often use out doing evangelism is A Lawyer's Case for His Faith. I love this book. Listen to this. Some have attempted to resolve this objection by claiming that the universe created itself. Stephen Hawking's famous conclusion is at the forefront of such beliefs. He claims that, quote, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Even if it were theoretically possible for the universe to create itself, it would only be possible if the requisite law of gravity existed before the universe was created. Where did the law of gravity come from? How was it initially put into place? The author goes on to say, in recent years, the scientific community has been stunned to discover how incredibly complex, sensitive, and precise the conditions are for the universe to permit the origin and development of life. There are listen to this, 15 constants the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Let's move on to the teleological argument for God I talked about earlier. What is it? The word comes from the Greek word telos, which means end or purpose. This is the argument that says that, the very, that there's a very clear present presence of design and purpose in the universe, which is evident in it, that it must have had a designer who had a purpose. 
intelligent design, that, and that God is the best explanation. Amen. So this argument is based on our own observation, right, of design and purpose within the universe and our own experience that design and purpose are the products of intelligence. And so in light of the fact that the universe is designed with a purpose, in light of the fact that design and purpose are the products of intelligence, it's therefore logically necessary that the universe had to have an intelligent designer who had a purpose. So there's some premises to this argument as well to determine, is it a valid argument? Write this down on your sheet under the teleological premises. Number one, the universe exhibits elements of design and purpose. That is very clear. Design and purposes are and products of intelligence. That is self-evidently true. But as believers, we know that God is the intelligent designer of the universe. In fact, Psalms chapter 33 says this, By Adonai's word were the heavens made and all their host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. He lays up deep water in storehouses. Likewise, in the New Covenant, we know God is the intelligent designer of the universe. John chapter 1, right? Verse 3, where he writes, all things were made through him. And apart from him, nothing was made that has come into being. So how is this an argument for God? You see, the evolution folks tend to personify nature or, or the process of evolution since evolution and nature are not intelligent entities in and of themselves, they cannot, quote, act with any sort of intelligent purpose. But in light of the fact that science provides no rational explanation for the design and purpose exhibited within the universe, the conclusion that God exists is not only likely, the conclusion that God exists is necessary. Jacob goes on in his book, and he says, and I've read some of it to you already, but he says this, if earth were either slightly closer or further away from the sun, we know this, life-sustaining water would remain as in solid form, in ice, or as a gas. If the distance between the sun and earth were altered by 0.01%, life as we know it would be unsustainable. It would, either, it would have either been too hot or too cold for our eventual existence. Earth's plate tectonics constantly recycle the air ensuring the potentially poisonous carbon dioxide levels do not get either too high or too low. So the universe, right, very obviously displays the elements of purpose and design. And regardless of how many, how people try to spin that, no one can provide any example or rationale for a non-intelligent source of design and purpose. And so given all those facts, and many more we could have gone into, it seems that only, not only likely, but absolutely necessary, there has to be an intelligent origin of the universe. And so since humans and animals are incapable of such creation on a grand scale, the intelligent origin of the universe has to be God. But there's evidence not only around us, there's evidence inside of us too, right? Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not have the Torah, do by nature the things of the Torah, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the Torah. They show that the work of the Torah is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts switching between either accusing 
or defending them. The moral argument for God within us, what is that? There is an argument that's based on the universal human understanding of what's right and what's wrong, and on the human universal acceptance of not only that, but our duty then morally and responsibility for that. And so this argument says that, the, that evolution and naturalism cannot adequately explain this phenomenon within us. And that it's only explained by God since a universal law must have its source in a universal lawgiver. And so it's based on our observation, it's based on our personal behavior and experience of a universal sense of right and wrong that is common among every single one of us. But its premises, write this one down under the moral argument. If God does not exist, if God does not exist, whew, then objective moral values and duties don't exist, right? Objective means that there are universal, these are universal and they're not based on man's opinion. You see, if everybody has a different opinion about what's right or wrong or what defines a male or what defines a female, there can be no objective definition of morality, only a subjective one. You see how the world's moving here. In order for morality to be universally applicable, it must be rooted in something merely beyond merely the opinions of man. It has to be rooted in something that's eternal, right? Unchanging. But if God does not exist, then no such thing exists. Therefore, if God does not exist, there would be no basis for objective morality, only subjective morality. Premise number two on your sheet, you can write this down. Uh, yet objective moral values and duties do exist. We all have a sense of right and wrong. Otherwise, why do we make statements like, that's not fair, or... What a shame. That those don't make any sense then. The presence of what we call a conscience is evidence of a foundation for morality that transcends our mere opinions and our mere preferences. To lack a conscience, you know what that actually means? That there's a disorder there somewhere. There's a mental disorder there if you lack a conscience. History shows that every society, we've always had laws and that they're all very similar in nature. There's a universal sense of outrage when we hear about injustice, obviously. The existence of objective moral values and duties is the foundation even for our criminal justice system. Therefore, premise number three, logically, God exists. Evolution and naturalism fail to explain objective moral duty because objective moral duty actually stands in the way of survival of the fittest. The only plausible explanation for a universal moral law that is universally understood and accepted is a universal law giver who is unchanging and is morally perfect. But how is this an argument for God? You see, many atheists, and I'm telling you, you can go on YouTube and spend all your days and nights if you want to with these atheists. But they argue that morality is simply nature's way of ensuring the survival of the species. Now, while they, that might be true for society as a whole, our individual natures are only concerned with preserving ourselves. The fact that our conscience, though, often runs counter to our desires demonstrates that our, the morality is something that, that transcends the individual. Because we're made in the image of God, we have God's law, as Paul said, written on our hearts. But because we're fallen, what happens? Our flesh then fights against that law. And so this explains why there's so much evil in the world and why 
that bothers us as well. You see, only God, April, if you'd come up, only God can explain why there are objective moral values and duties. Even though they run contrary oftentimes to our nature, without God, there would be no objective morality because objective morality only comes from God. It's not based on your opinion of right or wrong. It comes from God. So how can we convey this existence of God to others? We've got to start here, folks. Most out there will not accept this yet. We've got to deal with the existence of God with them first. Every one of us as believers is called to provide good arguments for our beliefs as well as respond to the tough objections and questions, rather, that one raises about our faith. The Bible is filled with passages that call us to actually contend for the faith with good reasoning. We don't turn our minds off as believers when we accept Yeshua, right? God has given us a new mind, a better mind. Faith is not blind, as people think, many people. Faith is built on good reason. We live in a culture in which biblical ideas and its worldview are increasingly, and we heard it from Gail today, and we know it's, it's increasingly under attack. Are we prepared for the challenges? Can we defend the existence of God? Do we know why the Bible is true? Can we offer reasons for why God allows horrific evil in our world? It is a challenge, but God says it's a challenge I have called you to rise to. There are great reasons, my friends, for our faith. We should have nothing to fear with tough questions. The truth can always stand up to challenges if we're willing to seek for it and do the work. And so in seeking to defend our faith, it will give us boldness in our faith. Isn't that right? Learning why we believe as we believe will help us become a bolder witness in what we believe. So in that regard, that's where we're headed over the next three more sessions with that. And with me, if you would, today, let's receive God's blessing over our lives. Thank you, Jeff. Hallelujah. The Lord told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons how to bless the sons and daughters of Israel. Receive it from the Lord today. <laughs> Yeir Adonai panav elecha v'chuneka. Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha. Shalom. May Adonai bless you and keep you this week. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance over you and grant you his shalom. In the name of the Prince of all shalom, Yeshua HaMashiach, and all of us said, Amen v'amen. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat tov. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, 
If you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like the show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.